Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkoff, and I am your host, and I am in sunny California, not too far from the beautiful campus of Stanford University. And in rainy, dark, grim England, recovering from uh, the, the royal wedding um, and the nonstop partying that has taken place by her since then, we have Corey Shockey of S. Uh, I confess and- I'm actually in sunny New York, David. I should have owned up to that. Wow. Well, okay. Um, see, I, we, we, the, even in the deep state, there's some things that slip through the cracks. <laughs> And uh, in Washington, D.C., which I don't know if it's sunny or not, but I'm happy not to be here, um, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University's Law School. And uh, we have, again, Bonnie Jenkins of, of, of WCAP um, and Brookings. Um, and I want to start with you, Bonnie, with a subject that we haven't discussed a lot on Deep State Radio, um, but one that you have had some exposure to in the course of your career. Um, uh in, 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 in sort of dealing with not just the spread of WMDs and stuff, but also on, on, on health-related issues, um, or at least your perspective on it. Because the White House seems to be cutting back on our ability to deal with, with things like potential epidemics, even as there is a, a burgeoning Ebola crisis in the middle of Africa. And, and it seems to me that this is really quite stunningly reckless. Um, but I was wondering what your take on it was. Uh, thanks, David. Uh, yes, you're right. It is, it is particularly reckless. At, and at this time, um, we're seeing why. Um, one of the things that the, that the government did in 2014 was uh, establish something called the Global Health Security Agenda, which is an effort to prevent, detect, and respond to threats. threats. And we now have over 60 countries that's working on this uh, effort to really st- strengthen uh, uh, countries around the world, their uh, capacity to deal with things like Ebola, to prevent, detect, and respond. Um, and uh, at that time, uh, we were given uh, funding by Congress to uh, do this issue, to, to uh, try to combat Ebola, and to put money into this effort, which has been quite successful in many ways. Unfortunately, um, we're looking at a possible uh, uh, decision by Congress to take about $252 million, uh, away from the, the Ebola money that we had that's unused funds and, you, and funds that could still be used and plan to be used uh, on these important issues to strengthen the capacity of countries around the world to deal with infectious disease like Ebola. So you have this happening right now at the same time that you have you know over 45 cases of, of Ebola in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, 25 deaths. Um, and it, interestingly enough, you're having USAID, for example, giving a million dollars toward 
this uh, this effort by WHO to raise money to deal with the, the recent cases of Ebola. So you have the U.S. on one hand taking money that could be used for the longer term strategic effort to prevent these to prevent these diseases by countries working together, and then you're going to give a million dollars for the short term uh, address of, of of the Congo. So it's it's kind of backwards, I think I would say, and how we try to approach this uh, this issue because infectious diseases they're not going away. There's going to be something always in the future, and we need a strategic way of trying to deal with this. And we have one um, that has over 60 countries working together to do it, and we're going to take money away from that. So it is it is uh, um, not a great way, I think, to approach this issue. Seems beyond not a great way. It seems absolutely crazy. And 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 Rosa, you know, one of the things you know we we talk every week about what's going on in the news, and you know, it's either you know some legal issue that's going on in the U.S. or or some self-inflicted wound by 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 Trump or or a you know a, 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 a you know a, a policy blunder someplace, um, but but the big risk seems to me that something comes out of left field, for which literally no one is prepared, where there is no policy process in this administration, and where key positions are disappearing or are underfunded and. Ebola is an example, getting rid of the cyber um, position within the, the NSC is an example. And it seems that, you know, it, it, we, we can predict all the catastrophes that could befall the Trump administration, um, but the ones that may be the most dangerous are the ones that are likely to blindside us. I mean, uh, I think in many ways that's always been the case. I think that one of the things that the U.S. government is never particularly been good at is rapidly responding to something that comes out of left field. Um, you know, we have these systems that are understandably set up with the, you know, governmental equivalent of, of, of heuristic shortcuts, uh, where we, you know, we expect tomorrow to be kind of like today, except maybe worse in all the dimensions in which today is bad, as opposed to expecting that tomorrow may be bad in some way that has uh, no relation to the things that are bad today. Um, so, 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 so in a sense, I don't think this is unique to this particular moment. Um, and I think that one of the areas in which uh, successive administrations have really struggled is in that kind of longer term strategic planning, you know, futures thinking, uh, being able to focus not just on whatever's, you know, coming down the pike that you can already see, but on, you know, what could happen in a month, in a year, in five years. Um, and there have been, you know, various efforts to beef up the NSC's strategic planning focus. There have been various efforts to make the, you know, the CIA sort of, I forget what the name of their uh, sort of futures think and, and um, red team type of activities more robust and more, more influential in terms of actual policymaking. And they have largely failed. I mean, I think that when you talk to the folks who have done that kind of work, their constant lament for several presidential administrations has been, you know, one of two things happens. Either you get these teams that are set up to to do that kind of out of the box thinking uh, and and start thinking about, well, how would we respond if these various possible kinds of things came out of left field? How would we respond to the to the unknown? And either either what happens is that they end up just getting sucked into the daily 
reactive stuff because they're smart people and nobody wants to quote unquote waste them on stuff that might never happen. Uh, and so they, you know, whatever the issue du jour is, they get they get pulled into that and at the at the expense of that longer term thinking. Um, or they continue to be able to do the longer term thinking, but the key decision makers lose interest in them because it doesn't relate to what's in the news that day. And so they're often some lonely little office producing reports that nobody reads. Um, I think it is it is certainly accurate to say that the Trump administration has unlike prior administrations where there has at least been a significant effort to say, gosh, how do we how do we do better at this, even if it's been a largely failed effort? The Trump administration has clearly had no interest in doing better. And as we've discussed, has has really been dismantling uh, some of the few mechanisms that were designed to do just that. So so we're going from already pretty bad to probably even worse, although we were pretty bad to start with. Although it has been reported in the press recently that Typically, when Trump was on the campaign trail, Melania would carry in her purse industrial strength disinfecting wipes because the president is a germaphobe. So at least he will be prepared. <laughs> I, I thought she was just carrying them to disinfect herself after contact with her husband. <laughs> well, I, was, I was headed to the same place, Rosa. <laughs> That's what I would be doing. For them. <laughs> That's, yeah, talk about, talk about. The, the, talk about a place where you could really use a very stylish hazmat suit. <laughs> <laughs> and if there's anyone who could get a hazmat suit that's stylish, it would certainly be she. Yes. Or she. Well, that's true. Or as the president seems to call her in Twitter, Melanie. Um, <laughs> which, again, really pretty fantastic. Um, before before I, I, I follow up on Rosa's question, would I be right in saying that, that Rosa... Rose's term heuristic shortcut was redundant. <laughs> you know, that, that, you're right, David. And I, I well, yes, that, David, I that would be and I thought this is redundant, but, but I said it anyway. <laughs> oh, I know you are trying. I know you said that just to help the nerds out there who were not. I love it that you appeal to me as the nerd among nerds. I feel my, my head being shaped even more pointy as a result, David. No, no, I look, don't kid yourself. The reason that tiara fits is because it's that pointy. <laughs> um, it doesn't slide around. That's right. It stays right where you put it. But, you know, I mean, we, we have seen some examples of this lack of preparedness, one of which, by the way, has gone completely off the radar, and that's Puerto Rico, which, you know, uh, we're, about, we're about to enter hurricane season again, and Puerto Rico still doesn't have power in a lot of places, the death toll was much higher than we said. Uh, and as it pertains to the Ebola case, it is another case where it seemed like the president was unprepared. And then he was unprepared to do anything about it when it happened because the people happened to be brown. And and I just want, you know, if this is going to be a hallmark of this administration and other such cases. Well, I uh, wouldn't want to impugn the president's moat motives by assuming that the reason he didn't care about Puerto Rico uh, was that they are people of color predominantly who live there. Uh, but it is unquestionably true that he didn't care uh, and that uh, he seemed to care a lot more about uh, disasters that struck other parts of the country where the people predominantly did not look like the people in Puerto Rico. And it's disgraceful. And I hope we solve it in the traditional American way, which is 
electoral consequences for inattention to the important needs of constituents? Well, a lot of those Puerto Ricans are moving to Florida where they will get to vote. Um, and, and Brilliant. And, Florida being the keystone of presidential elections. Right. So right. it may, may have an, a consequence in that, in that regard. But Bonnie, as somebody who sort of spent a lot of her time looking at the horizon, uh, particularly out into left field where these big things could happen, do you share this concern that was articulated here by Rosa that while we may focus on Iran and while we may focus on North Korea um, uh, or you know domestic political upheaval, there are a whole lot of places where we don't focus, where there are imminent potential threats. Oh, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I you know there there are. I mean, we, this this administration is not really um, looking at the landscape. They're not looking at the landscape in terms of issues, and they're not looking at the landscape in terms of uh, regional issues. Um, you see the way we have dealt with things like climate change, um, other issues of importance of the environment, um, other issues of importance to people, um, you know, food and water security, other issues of, you know, things that really impact people around the world are just not things that this administration is focusing on. Um, they're looking at, uh, if you look at the national security strategy, the focus is Russia and China. Um, if you look at, you know, the, the nuclear posture review, it's about building more nuclear weapons. I mean, looking at the landscape of challenges uh, to Americans and people around the world is just not something that this administration wants to do. I don't know if they are able to do it. Um, and as you said earlier, I mean, there is a lot more of, you know, bluster and, and anger and threats and military focus. And that's really what this administration is about. So it doesn't surprise me that there was no, that they did not respond correctly or deal with Puerto Rico correctly. correctly. And it doesn't surprise me that they're not even thinking about how they're going to deal with, with uh, similar challenges as they start to come, uh, come up again. It's just not what they do. What, it's not what, what they school that and not what they do. What, what, what are your sort of dark nights of the soul look at? Like when you're like sort of imagining what might happen um, that, that, you know, could come out of left field, what, what worries you the most? Is it still to me? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think we're, I mean, we're seeing, this whole, we're seeing. You should understand, Bonnie, this whole entire podcast series, and we're up to almost episode 100, is devoted to Rose's Dark Nights of the Soul. <laughs> <laughs> that is our but, overarching yes, theme. You guys always make me feel a little bit better, though. At <laughs> night, I, I take off my thorny crown of entropy and, and rest easier because of you. But yeah, <laughs> if only the same were true for Corey and me. But in any event, go. Um, well, you know, I, even though my my history has been weapons of mass destruction, and that's really what I've focused on in my career, and recently more on things like infectious disease. My, you know, what I tell young people about it, about the future is is about these these bigger issues to the environment. Um, bigger issues to the well-being and health of people, um, like infectious disease, for example, like climate change. I mean, I know, you know, we're still in the, what I say, somewhat Cold War, um, when you read the rhetoric that's been coming from the administration, kind of going backwards at a time when we should not be doing that. 
Um, so when I think, when I talk about the future and the catastrophes, the problems and things from left field, they're not going to be the things we've dealt with in the past 50 years or so. They're going to be things that are truly left field, but not totally left field in the sense that we don't know they're coming. It's just they're left field in the sense that we're not preparing ourselves. We're not working with the international community on how we should be trying to address these things in the future. And just briefly, that's why we go back to the global health security agenda, because that's exactly what it was trying to do, which is trying to find a way to work with other countries to try and strengthen the health system so we can prevent these things like Ebola that do not understand borders. Um, well, and that's what we don't do. And that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, and I have to say that's not the only thing. I, let me. I just, as 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 it happened, I just came from a lunch with a a, a, a woman um, that my wife's organization had just honored, whose name is uh, Sister Marilyn Lacey, and she's one of the Sisters of Mercy, and they do a lot of work in South Sudan. And when they started doing the work a number of years ago in South Sudan, um, something like. 30-odd women in the whole country had a high school education. Um, and now they've got, you know, uh, or uh, no, it was I think it was a dozen women, actually. And they'd, they've now gotten up to the point just through their program alone where hundreds and hundreds of women have and, 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 uh, uh, and dozens of women are now have college educations and are in more leadership roles. But of course, the consequence of this lack of education is that they have the highest maternal mortality rate in the world, where sort of one in seven people dies in childbirth um, because they don't have the, the tools or the education. And I just bring this up because the calamities that are befalling the world are not the calamities that make it onto TV all the time. Um, and they're happening in real time. And when we turn away from them as a country, uh, by cutting funding or by cutting attention or by saying these are not our priorities anymore, um, we increase the risk of humanitarian catastrophes um, elsewhere. Uh, or, or humanitarian catastrophes that really um, uh, spin out of control um, and, and not just in places like South Sudan, another place, Rosa, that's completely going to shit where we have really not devoted any attention to it, is Venezuela. But the country is in, you know, the, when those you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people start leaving that country, a lot of them are going to head here, or they're going to head to countries in Central America where their presence would be hugely destabilizing. And it seems to me that's another area where we're completely ill-prepared yeah, yeah. for something that seems obvious that it's going to happen. You know, it's it's an ongoing humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, just the hunger, uh, killing killing children, killing people who are elderly. Uh, you know, killing the very very poor. Um, it's 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 in some ways absolutely shocking how little attention the United States has been paying to Venezuela over the last year or so. Just as as we've seen this sort of mounting political crisis combined with this just level of privation that ordinary people are dealing with, um, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration in the wake of the, the election, an election should probably be put in quotation marks, has, like many other states, uh, sort of said, hmm, 
and somewhat surprisingly, right, given the administration's general lack of interest in uh, democratic process or outcomes, uh, this administration has denounced the the election. Um, but I don't. It's not particularly clear that 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 denunciation, uh, which was combined with a threat of sanctions, has been accompanied by any meaningful thought to how to address the humanitarian crisis, keep it from becoming worse, or keeping it from, as you say, turning into uh, a crisis that also leads to massive refugee flow in the region and ultimately to the United States. Yeah, and it's interesting, Corey, because there are periods in the recent past, including the administration you served in, where people were still paying attention to the Americas. I know you have heard me say it before, and you have to be tired of hearing it, but but the consolidation of North America is the biggest opportunity that we're missing, and that we that Venezuela is suffering, and that we have nothing to say about the sham election, about the descent of a country that ought to be prosperous into extreme deprivation, that we aren't mobilizing civil society groups, religious groups, um, to, to help Venezuelans in this incredibly awful time is such a missed opportunity. There are so many ways in which we are fortunate to, to have the neighbors that we do and that a little bit of attention and effort can buy us lots of long-term stability and lots of long-term goodwill from our neighbors. And we're just ignoring those opportunities. Um, we are because we focus we focus on uh, on these on these very very narrow set of things that are that that take place in the United States and they seem you know very very serious. Um, but you know I think there's a broader story afoot here, um, and I think the Iran deal you know illustrates this, where the United States creates an international deal then breaks the deal. And in the past few um, days, it's become clear that the administration is going to double down on potential sanctions on the Europeans, and the Europeans are going to resist and try to come up with ways to immunize themselves against the sanctions, and that we're about to head into a period of transatlantic tension of a sort that we haven't seen, where the administration is suggesting that multilateral deal-making isn't that important. Um, we've seen their attitudes towards the United Nations and global enterprises that deal with everything from democracy to climate with Paris Accords uh, to things like funding or paying attention to transnational threats like uh, diseases uh, and so forth. And it strikes me that we're really coming to the end of, the, of a period of history that's been 75 years not just sort of Pax Americana, but post-World War II reality, where we placed multilateralism and concern for these broader issues at the front, where we built alliances and relied on them. Um, and that this is a this is a watershed moment in our history. So I well, hope it's yeah. not. Oops, I'm sorry. No, I was just I was just going to say very briefly. I mean. I, this is a point right now when we should be, as, as, as the U.S. should be, looking at the global landscape and asking itself what kind of leader it wants to be. Um, and, you know, do we want to continue, do we want to be the leader that we were in the past 
when we focused on one or two adversaries and you know the highlight of our day was how how many adversaries we can talk about and how much you know what what we could use what we could use our vast weapons for um you know in 2018 we need to be a different kind of leader um and we need to be a leader that's really looking at what the real threats are not to americans but to people around the world that's what the leader should be doing a leader should be doing now and we are not doing that at all and we're we're at that point in our environment and all of these issues where we need to think about every step that we take and every activity that we engage in and how how that's going to negatively impact the environment that we're in um, and we're not doing that at all Corey, did you want to say something earlier? Yeah, um, I I can't remember what it was though because Bonnie just made a much better point than I was going to. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's what happens when we get people like Bonnie on the show. Um, um, but you know, I, I do think that this period is one where we're at greater risk of that Washington pitfall of letting the urgent overtake the important um, uh, than we have been at any time. And I think that could produce some major setbacks on all of these transnational issues, uh, quite beyond you know, what's, what's going on um, in, 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 in the US. Having said that, I do wanna spend a minute or two Rosa, talking about the recent developments uh, in the U.S., because I think as big issues go, having the leader of the most important democracy um, in the world, not the biggest, but certainly the most influential for most of the past um, century, um, actively involved in an effort to um, undermine the rule of law, um, uh, uh, pressure his own Justice Department into investigating itself, try to quash investigations into himself, um, uh, and, and abusing his power in a whole host of other ways, including, you know, turning government agencies against companies he doesn't like, media companies in particular, um, is actually a bigger story than just about Trump. It's a story about a challenge to the American system that it hasn't seen before on a scale I don't think it's seen before. Um, and being our resident um, legal mind, I was wondering what you think of the recent developments. Well, I think it's, it's part of the constitutional rot that we have talked about on other episodes of Deep State Radio. You know, it's, it's uh, this kind of steady, drumbeat of attacks coming directly from the president himself, as well as from his allies. Uh, and those attacks have been on a range of actors. They've been on, they've been on judges and courts that, that hand down decisions that the president doesn't like. They've been obviously now on the Justice Department and the FBI, law enforcement agencies. We've, we've obviously also seen them in the foreign policy domain. We've seen attacks on the State Department, attacks on the intelligence community, but, but, but focusing domestically. Uh, you know, no, absolutely. It, it's, it's another area in which this administration is really, I think, unlike any 
that have gone before, and I, I hesitate to say ever, since I know Corey will point out that Grover Cleveland did something like this, uh, or, you know, but, 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 you know, certainly, certainly for many, many decades, um, you know, and, and it's interesting, I actually, one, one point of comparison might be thinking about um, uh, the, thinking about actually two precedents, one FDR and the other Richard Nixon, right? When FDR famously tried to pack the Supreme Court, he wanted to uh, after a series of defeats in the Supreme Court for various uh, uh, New Deal-related legislation and executive action, President Roosevelt got sick of it. Um, he correctly thought that the courts were kind of out to get his agenda, right? And he said, well, I'm going to increase the number of Supreme Court justices. Uh, uh, there's no you know, inherent constitutional limitation to, num- to nine. Uh, so I'm going to increase the number, and I'm going to basically appoint people who are going to be sympathetic to me the the outrage from all quarters, both within both within the Republican Party and within his own party, was so great that he was forced to back off and say, "Never mind." You know, of course, I wouldn't do a thing like that. You know, that even though the outcome of all these cases has gone against my preferences, uh, I have to respect the integrity of the process. Um, Richard Nixon, even Richard Nixon. You know, obviously not a man up to uh, the standard set by Roosevelt. Um, but when the House voted to impeach, Nixon resigned, right? And even resignation, you know, if you could say that's a way of acknowledging the the legitimacy of the process itself. You know, that he he didn't say, I don't care what the House thinks. I'm not going anywhere. Screw you. And I demand an investigation into the process that led to the investigation of me. You know, that 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 that, that I think really we've we've had for for many, many decades, and we've been very lucky in this country, for many, many decades, we have had for all of the deep divisions between the political parties and for all of the incredibly contentious issues that we've been faced with, we've had presidents who have, you know, essentially accepted that there is this set of rules, many of which are unwritten, that say you, you know, you have to accept that the process is the process. Uh, and, you know, whether you like it or not, even when it goes against you, it's the process. Or think of Al Gore conceding on the hanging chads issue, right? Al Gore didn't say, rise up, people, and march on Washington, and, you know, I won the popular vote, and I demand to be president. Instead, he said, okay, you know, the court has spoken, end of the story. Um, I don't think this administration would do that in similar circumstances. So far, what they have done every time any nonpartisan institution from the courts to, you know, the professional civil servants in their own government has said or done anything that is inconvenient to President Trump. They have simply sought to actively undermine and discredit those institutions themselves. And, you know, it, it, it shows, you know, you could argue that the fact that, you know, we're all still sort of standing shows that the system is in fact resilient, or you could say that in fact it shows that the system's incredibly fragile because we, we are seeing it start to buckle. You know, it hasn't completely buckled, but bit by bit, you know, the Rod Rosenstein says, okay, fine, all right, fine, I'll have the inspector general try to see if anybody infiltrated your campaign, you know, th- that we've seen in all kinds of ways, large and small, the system is buckling in response to this sort of unprecedented assault on it. Um, so I, I think it's very, very scary. You know, it doesn't, 
you know, maybe we get through it and maybe we say, wow, this, this just reinforces the importance of uh, ensuring that elected officials have true and genuine allegiance to the rule of law. But I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure we do get through it. Maybe we don't get through it. Well, it's certainly looking that way. I mean, the, the, you know, Trump has said, I demand to see information on this investigation. And, and it's starting to look like he may actually see it. I mean, it's, it's starting to look like the Justice Department may actually cave and share it with the Congress or share it with him yeah. and so forth. Um, I agree. And Today feels like a really scary day for justice in America to me. Explain why. Uh, ben Wittes and Quinta Jurek's piece on uh, how the Justice Department is responding to Trump's demands I would, of course, defer to Rosa, who's an actual lawyer, reading their worry about this is this is the point at which the line gets crossed. Um, scared me a lot. I mean, I, I want to come to you in a second, Bonnie, but Rosa, did it scare you? Yes, no, for for the reasons I just said, absolutely. We we seem to be we seem to be at a turning point, um, Bonnie. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on this. Um, I, I I would just just echo what what Corey said. I mean, I was really not happy to hear that Rob Rosenstein was essentially agreeing to look into it. I was hoping that you know he would make a case for why there would be no need to do that. And why the, the the process that was done was was the way it was supposed to go. So, you know, it's another chink in the armor. Um, and you know, I I too have always said that um, you know our institutions will prevail in the long run, and they will stay strong, and they will, you know, they will get past the Trump years. But when when things like that happen, um, it does make you wonder, um, because when you have the people who have the ability to try to keep things from falling apart, not doing what they can to prevent things from falling apart. It does make you feel a little more concerned about whether the institutions will stand up. It does. It's it's very serious thing. And, and, and things do seem to be coming apart in Washington as we see. There does seem to be one, you know, sort of bright story on the horizon um, as far as American institutions working um, as we tape this, a baboon has escaped an American Airlines flight uh, and, um, and is currently on the loose San Antonio airport. Rosa, you'll be pleased to know that your brothers and sisters in blue say they have it cornered near the baggage area. Okay, well. Well, I thought the baboons were supposed to stay in first class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well played, that, Rosa. Well, they'll that baboon is they'll they'll corner it and then they'll put him back in first class. I, I I will say I I am sort of fascinated by the by the uh, creativity of the people who are determined to kind of push the envelope on what types of support animals you can bring on a plane with you. You know, bringing peacocks and hippos and so forth. Um, just to kind of see how the airlines will react if you say, but this is my emotional support hippopotamus or whatever. <laughs> so I wonder whether this was an emotional support baboon. And I'm concerned about the, the people to whom it was providing such support. 
Um, well, the they're without their baboon now. I know, I know. If that's my habit. Oh, no, no. Well, the problems that we all face, as you guys have described them, do require emotional support baboons. And uh, I personally am going to make an application for Fiona at the Cincinnati Zoo or wherever she is to be my emotional support baboon. I recommend that everybody else does that. And Okay, want Fiona you know the hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo is just magnificent. Thank you. Um, but, but, I, but I have to say, having know, knowing all of this, I just want everybody out there in deep state nerd land to know uh, that thanks to Rose's handiwork, when you come to the silo, uh, service animals will be fully ex- accepted. Um, so, your your emotional support llamas the whole works will be accepted there um, <laughs> only if they're small and furry llamas yes well if it's a llama without fur it's disgusting and i don't that's another story rosa thank you bonnie thank you Corey, thank you everybody join us again soon for another uplifting episode of deep state radio with all of us who are your emotional support animals um, <laughs> on a weekly basis. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, We know where to find you.